I'm Julia Goodwin, and I'm here to say murder is bad. On the morning of March 24, 1961, eight-year-old Margarita Bejarano was getting ready for school in her Tucson, Arizona home. Her father, Lazaro Bejarano, was going to drive Margarita to school, but had lost his construction job the day before and needed to go to the employment office first thing that morning. So Margarita left her home at 138 West Flores Street to walk the seven-tenths of a mile it took to get to Roosevelt Elementary School where she attended as a third grader. She wore a lavender dress with a navy blue sweater, white socks, and white and black saddle shoes that she would sometimes tuck her coins for lunch into. Somewhere in between her home and school, Margarita went missing. So I'm going to set the stage for that time period a bit. 1961 was the year John F. Kennedy was sworn in. The Beatles started playing at the Cavern Club in Liverpool with Pete Best instead of Ringo Starr. The Peace Corps was introduced as well as Barbie's bow, Ken. And popular television shows were Bonanza, Mr. Ed, and The Donna Reed Show. Shout out to anyone who remembers that Gilmore Girls episode. Uh, And over the radio, you could expect to hear artists like Elvis Presley, Chubby Checker, and Connie Francis. All right, so Maria Bejarano, Margarita's mother, expected her daughter to return home from after-school activities by 5.30. But when Margarita did not show up, Maria immediately contacted the police. When authorities checked in with the school, they said she had never shown up for her classes. And this was before the school would call home and say, hey, where's your kid at? Um, And she actually changed that. They instituted those kinds of things because of that. Um, So police began canvassing the five-mile radius around Margarita's home while patrol cars gave her description through loudspeakers. The area between Margarita's house and school was semi-industrial and had a two-block stretch that was just against desert where trash had been strewn. Maria described what her daughter had been wearing and added that she had very fair skin and black hair, which had been put up into two braids. She said, she is a very good little girl. She never goes anywhere without telling us. A neighbor from down the street, Eugene Riblet, told authorities that his two daughters would occasionally walk with Margarita. He said she was usually late, usually the last straggler going up the road to school. Can relate. His two daughters said that they hadn't seen Margarita all day. Police also spoke to a crossing guard who patrolled a busier street adjacent to the school who said they knew Margarita, but they hadn't seen her that morning. Searches went on through the night with Lazaro and Maria joining, and in the morning, 
Pima County Search and Rescue, along with friends, family, and neighbors, continued the search. A tip actually came in about Margarita being seen near the Helen Killing School, about a mile away. But when police went to search the area, they only found a girl who matched her general description. Margarita's father eventually went to bed in the early hours of the 25th. Her mother, however, stood in their front yard, just waiting, while Margarita's three younger brothers played close by. She said, Everyone seems to be under the impression that someone has her. While Margarita's disappearance triggered a stream of child molestation reports, some from as far back as three months prior, none of the leads turned up any viable information about her current whereabouts. After two days of searching the immediate neighborhood, investigators expanded their efforts to the outlying areas. The FBI, while keeping tabs on the investigation, had no official involvement, according to Special Agent Edward Boyle. He also said if there were any indications that this was a kidnapping, the FBI would assume full jurisdiction. And I'm wondering, what else do they think it could be? She's eight years old. Her parents are together. It's not like a custody thing. But anyways, by Sunday the 26th, Police Captain Thomas Rickle told reporters that they had called off the mass searches, but had deployed 15 to 20 men to follow up on leads that had been acquired. He was quoted as saying, we'll resume a mass search if it's needed. But unfortunately, they would not have to resume a search. Around four in the afternoon the following day, Clyde Nolene reported to Salvation Army personnel that he had found the body of a little girl. Clyde, who was a 34-year-old unhoused man, told police he had been on a freight train when it stopped to let another train pass. He hopped off and walked down to where the Kenyatta del Oro crossed under the Casa Grande Highway. While he was searching for a spot of clear water to get a drink, he saw the legs of a small child coming out from some brush. Clyde hopped back on the train and rode it into Tucson to report it. Police confirmed it was Margarita Bejarano. Two hours later, reports of Margarita's body being found were already being broadcasted. And it was on one of these reports that Maria, her mother, found out that her only daughter would never be coming home. She immediately collapsed and fell into an extreme emotional depression. Margarita Abril, Maria's mother, and little Margarita's grandmother and namesake called 911. Lazaro was still out searching, but arrived home to see the ambulance in his driveway. When EMTs arrived, they administered oxygen to Maria, but she stayed silent and shocked. Around the same time, two police officers had arrived to let the family know what had been discovered. Margarita Abril, the grandmother, said that she tells her daughter that she's here, but that her daughter never answers. 
But back at the crime scene, investigators were combing through the area for evidence. And this is a trigger warning. Uh, Several officers stated that they saw blood droplets and bruising around Margarita's thighs and her dress had been pulled up. This led them to believe she had been sexually assaulted. They also found two bullet holes in the back of her head. Besides some treads and footprints, though, they didn't find much in the way of evidence. A little later, chemist Edward Brazil, and I'm sure chemist is like a technician of some sort, but chemist is a way cooler name. Anyways, Edward found more of Margarita's blood on the actual bridge above. They also found 35 cents near the body, a quarter and a dime. These could have been the coins Margarita had tucked in her shoe for lunch. She could have been holding them in her hands, maybe offering them to whoever took her. Or it could have just been spare change dropped to the bottom of the same underpass that covered Margarita's body. Police had already been interviewing sex offenders in the area, but after the discovery of Margarita's body, authorities set up headquarters at Parkview Hotel where they re-questioned several people. Police also received a couple potentially revealing tips. One was that she was supposedly seen on the Casa Grande Highway with a man in an older vehicle. The other came from a woman in the neighborhood who said she had seen Margarita running near the corner of Lee Street and 9th Avenue. She remembered thinking how odd it was because Margarita still had 20 minutes before the start of school, but she was only six blocks away. When pathologist uh, Dr. Lewis Hirsch performed the autopsy on Margarita, he was able to retrieve two 22 caliber slugs. He also made the determination that Margarita had not been raped. But police were still certain that the attack had been sexually motivated. That is until they received news that an escaped patient from a psychiatric hospital had confessed to Margarita's murder. On March 29, 1961, 25-year-old Joe Colmanero gave Chief of Police Bernard L. Garmeyer details that, quote, would be difficult for a person not intimate with the crime to know. Having read literally hundreds of articles on this case, both pre- and post-trial, yes, there will be a trial, and it's hard for me to imagine what details Joe could have known that weren't readily available in a nearby newspaper, but we'll have to take Bernard's word for it. A little about Joe Colmanero. According to his mother, Joe had been troubled since the age of 12 or 13 after he had sustained a head injury from a hit and run. He had, however, recovered enough to join the army when he was a teenager. His sister, Connie Chacon, said Joe had gotten into a fight around Christmas where police had hit him in the head, which seemed to exacerbate his problems. He was last seen by his family on January 4th, 1961, before he left for California to find a job. Shortly after arriving in San Diego, 
Joe got into another fight, which led to police arresting him and eventually transferring him to Patton Hospital on February 24th. He was evaluated as being a simple schizophrenic, which from my research most likely referred to dissociative identity disorder. Dissociative, dissociative, tough. So shortly after his admittance, his grandmother visited him. And in all accounts, it seems like he was a part of a very close-knit family. In a letter on hospital stationery received on March 22nd, two days before Margarita's disappearance and murder, Joel told his mother he would get out soon and come home to marry his girlfriend. She didn't believe he would hurt anyone. When Joe was arrested Monday night in Blythe, California, he told police he had, quote, killed that little girl in Arizona. Police did find a 22 caliber rifle on him, and he also admitted to having another 22 caliber weapon that he had left behind at an attempted burglary. This so-called burglary occurred at the house of a school teacher who happened to be on Easter vacation. It was unconfirmed and police did not find a 22 caliber weapon on the premises. This did not stop good old Chief Garmeyer from putting all his eggs in this basket. He was convinced that this was the murderer, especially when he learned that Joe used to live in Marana, a suburb of Tucson, and still had family in the area. Chief Garmeyer said his residency, quote, gives him the intimate knowledge of the city, which we feel the killer must have had. Boom, got him. Wait, don't we need something? What's that? What's it called? Oh, yeah, evidence. Joe had a pretty tight alibi, no thanks to his confession. Joe said he had hitchhiked from California to Tucson and back to Blythe, California within four days, which is technically possible. Unfortunately for Chief Garmeyer, the superintendent of Patton Hospital, Dr. Otto Garicki, told police that Joe had only been missing since Sunday night, two days after Margarita had been murdered. Headcounts were routinely performed at 7, 11, and 3 every day, as well as during work details and mealtimes. A nurse, Shirley Foster, would actually see Joe Colmenero every day for therapy work, and she said she had seen him Friday morning, This would be during the same time Margarita was supposedly taken. Another nurse, Charles DeClos, told investigators that he had opened the door for Joe Colmenero to start his work detail on Sunday morning. After working, Joe and a couple other patients that had been working in the cafeteria went to that same door to go back to their rooms. When it wasn't immediately open, that's when Joe took off. That's according to the other patients. When Joe was seen outside around 9.30, workers at Patton Hospital thought nothing of it because he had grounds privileges. Privileges. A man driving past the hospital, only cited as Mr. Slattery, called Patton Hospital at 10.15 to tell them he had picked up a man near the hospital. And now I'm wondering when Mr. Slattery 
had the thought that he may have picked up a patient from the psychiatric hospital. And I wonder if it wasn't until he told Mrs. Slattery. Just a thought. But anyways, even with the corroboration of this alibi and Superintendent Garicki's insistence that the hospital was not covering up anything, Chief Garmeyer still said he had received indications that Joe Colmenero might have been gone several days before being noticed. But when ballistics returned from Joe's rifle with a big goose egg, it was determined that Joe Colmenero had not kidnapped or murdered Margarita Bejarano. He was cleared and readmitted to Patton Hospital on April 1st. So police went back to square one, but they didn't have to wait long before another man would confess to the murder of Margarita. In keeping with escapees, on April 19th, 33-year-old Ronaldo Coronado Leon was arrested in Caborca, Sonora, which is about three and a half hours south of Tucson in Mexico. After being taken in for assaulting his wife, he said he thought he was being arrested for killing that girl in Arizona. After many interviews and a lie detector test, it was determined that he was not responsible for Margarita's death. It was confirmed by Arizona State Prison's warden, Frank Iman, that Leon had been on a ranch near Caborca during the supposed timeline of the crime. And now I just have to go on this little tangent about this guy, Warden Frank Iman. He was born in 1898, served in World War I as part of the 5th Cavalry on horseback, he was also one of the police officers who caught John Dillinger. He became captain of Tucson's police department before resigning to enlist in World War II as a part of the U.S. Navy intelligence. Then he was Pima County Sheriff before being appointed as superintendent and warden of the Arizona State Prison. And during his time as warden, he played a warden in two films, The Way to the Gold and Riot, which starred Gene Hackman. I just had to say something. Back to the case. After interrogations, mass searches in the desert, and two false confessions, authorities were no closer to finding who murdered Margarita Bejarano. And it would be over a year before they had another lead. On May 13th, 1962, 45-year-old Willie Lee Hill Jr. was apprehended on grand theft charges for taking $156 from the Beehive Tavern where he had been a cook. That would be around $1,600 today. The Beehive Tavern was two miles from where Margarita went missing. And the day Willie Lee had absconded with the money was March 27, 1961, the same day Margarita's body was found. A girlfriend of Willie Lee had told police that he had fled the city and said, quote, they found her body. She also told police that he had been on an early morning hunting trip in the same area Margarita's body had been found on the morning Margarita went missing. Willie Lee was arrested in Pittsburgh and had to appear at court there before returning to Tucson. 
He also had a warrant in Alabama for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, but they waived their hold so that Arizona could prosecute him. Sheriff Walden V. Burr paraphrased his undersheriff who had gone to retrieve Willie Lee by saying, I would say it looks very favorable. Undersheriff James Wyckoff brought back several weapons that had been in Willie Lee's possession when he was arrested. A .22 caliber rifle, a .22 caliber revolver, and a .25 caliber automatic pistol. Two bullets that had been fired from each of the weapons were sent to the FBI laboratory to determine if they matched the .22 caliber slugs taken out of Margarita's head. For some reason, the FBI only had photos of the slugs, so then they had to request the actual bullets to continue their testing. From the photos alone, however, they were able to eliminate the revolver. Sheriff Burr took the FBI's request for the actual slugs as an indication that they had something. And the fact that he hadn't heard back yet bolstered that belief since negative results usually came back quickly. While testing continued on the ballistics, Sheriff Burr also requested that Willie Lee submit to a polygraph test. Actually, he wanted him to submit to three. Because of a pre-existing heart condition, Sheriff Burr decided that taking three and comparing them should give them a good idea of the truth. And to that, I say, what? Like, we already know polygraph tests are poo-poo doo-doo. But three of them, and then stitching them together to form some kind of story? No, no sense. And also, Willie Lee's attorney, Blair D. Benjamin, ended up objecting to any more polygraph tests because they had already taken one. And he wanted stipulations to be drawn up, something like information uncovered could not be used against Willie Lee. But then, attorney Benjamin changed his mind, saying, In the best interest of my client, I must not let him take the polygraph test. Now, Attorney Benjamin was actually Willie Lee's appointed representation for the grand theft charge, which led to special investigator Charles Coates to say, no matter what the outcome of the trial is, Benjamin will no longer be Hill's lawyer, and at that time, we will try to give Hill the test. Which would seem a little questionable, but it should be noted that Willie Lee always denied being involved in Margarita's murder and wanted to take the polygraph tests. Then, on June 27th, it was announced that Willie Lee's 22 caliber rifle did not match the slugs taken from inside Margarita. Looks like Sheriff Spurrer's optimism was ill-conceived, but Willie Lee remained his lead suspect. After being sentenced to three to five years on his embezzlement charge, Willie Lee agreed to further polygraph testing. It was then reported that the results of the second polygraph test were consistent with the first. Both tests cleared Willie Lee of having any guilty knowledge pertaining to the murder. He was then transferred from police custody to Arizona State Prison to serve his sentence. And with him went all the leads they had about Margarita's case. Until... In September of 1962, when Pima County Police responded 
to a child molestation report in Marana, a suburb of Tucson. The wife of 26-year-old Serapio Esparga said he had, quote, bothered several children and that he had mentioned Margarita's name. Their family had actually known the Bejaranos, and this man seemed to be very interested in the case. Serapio had been admitted to the county hospital psychiatric ward, but was being sought for a polygraph test. Deputy John Rohr, a polygraph operator, said he would not administer the test until the suspect had been off all medications for 48 hours. Medications, I'm guessing, from the psychiatric hospital ward, or they also said he had been sick and had taken stuff for that possibly, but he wasn't going to give him the test until he was clean. But when Serapio took the test that same month, he was cleared. He did, however, go to trial for the attempted rape of an 11-year-old girl, and fingers crossed, I couldn't find out that he was convicted because, oh my gosh, you hideous monster. Anyways, the next lead would come from another confession made that December, nearly two years after Margarita had been murdered. But you will have to wait to hear about that on Friday when part two comes out. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the conclusion of Margarita's story. And I just want to shout out a few resources um, at the end here. If you suspect a child is being abused, you can contact the Child Help National Child Abuse Hotline at 1-800-4-A-CHILD. That's 1-800-422-4453. If you know or have a child who's gone through abuse and needs support, a list of accredited child advocacy centers can be found at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, murder is bad.